Today's reading will be out of Psalm 118. And I'm actually going to call an audible here and add Psalm 117 to it because I think it adds, it goes perfectly with it. So Psalm 117, starting in verse 1 through Psalm 18, verse 29 says, Praise the Lord, all the nations, extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast Lord, or his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteous, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that builders rejected, he has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Blind, or bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. His steadfast love endures forever. What a glorious truth. We're going to be in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and beginning in verse 22 through 30. Our passage today brings before us three uh, really important truths as we understand and learn and think about our own salvation. Um, I kind of broke this down into three major sections. One, we need to trust the exclusive nature of our salvation. Second, we need to trust the uh, eternal and the, the uh, secure nature of our salvation. And third, we need to trust the divine nature of our salvation. So as we walk through the, this passage, we'll see those three aspects laid out by Jesus. 
John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, says this. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come before this text. Lord, this glorious truths that are seeping out of the words of this passage. God, I pray as we dig in, as we, as we uh, go through section by section through this verse, Lord, that we will just see how glorious your salvation is. Lord, we will worship you because of how great you are, not because of how great we are or because we feel something emotional, Lord, but that we would just glory in the truths of your salvation and let that be our worship sacrifice to you. In your name, amen. Amen. So we're going to start walking through this passage um, First of all, we start out, look at this in the beginning of verse 1. It says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now again, as we saw with we saw uh, earlier in chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, and that had this really theological significance going on because of, uh, because of what was intended by the Feast of Tabernacles as it was commanded by the Lord. The Feast of Dedication is not the same, it doesn't fit in the same category. The Feast of Dedication was not actually prescribed by the Lord. This was actually just a traditional holiday that came up. This is the Feast of Hanukkah. You guys have ever heard of Hanukkah? I'm sure you've, if you've seen anything, you know, have been around the world, you've seen or, you know, uh, watched TV and around Christmas time, you've heard of Hanukkah. Hanukkah was a certain, was a celebration of, there's a, there's some freedom fighters. This is in the intertestamental period between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was some freedom fighters that the, 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 the nations were coming in around the, the nation of Israel. And there were some freedom fighters of one specific guy named Judas Maccabeus. And he, uh, he was able to, um, anyway, the, these freedom fighters were able to defeat the, defeat the, their enemies. So in a very real sense, there was, they saw this feast uh, as, a, as, a, as a second feast of tabernacles. What happened, this battle, was, this battle and these events were taking place over eight days. So they had an eight-day celebration uh, remembering this great victory where the Lord, where they, they understood that the Lord had freed them from their oppressors. So like tabernacles, it celebrated the freedom of the people of Israel from oppression and was an eight-day feast. So there was a lot of... Uh, correlation in the minds of the people of Israel at this time. They, they, they took the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Hanukkah, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of similarities, and they kind of saw the Feast of, Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah as a second Feast of Tabernacles. This, um, this feast is, is not one of the was commanded by the Lord, so there's no prophetic fulfillment to be found in John's notation of the feast. Um, this feast was, held, was typically held in the month of, month of December, so here we are now, we are a few months closer to the crucifixion. 
Um, that's kind of the biggest reason John is bringing this up. He's, he's tracking where we are time-wise until we come to the event of the crucifixion. Um, so here we are now in the winter. This is in the, next, in the last four or five months before the crucifixion takes place. Uh, John also notices here that it was winter, right? That seems like an odd thing to mention, right? Now, again, for one thing, it could just be uh, explaining why they were in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that here in just a second. It could be it's just letting you know, hey, it's the Feast of Dedication and it's winter. There's also a very, very strong possibility that very much like in John 3, where John notes that it was night when, when, uh, when Nicodemus came to see Jesus. Um, that, that notation there that it was night was not just to tell you what time of day it was. It was also to show the spiritual ideas going on here, that, that Nicodemus was in spiritual darkness, um, and he, he was in a spiritual night, so to speak. It's very possible then that John could be doing something similar, saying that the people that he is talking to, the Jews, were also in a spiritual winter. There was that... Um, that, uh, that the, the, the frosty temperatures outside corresponded to the frozen spirits of the Jews. It also notes here that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon in verse 23. The colonnade of Solomon was, a loca- was the location and design of this particular structure. It was, a, it was a structure that was set around the outside of the temple. And what, it, what, what was neat about that then is that you had windbreak on either side. You had the temple on one side and the wall of the colonnade on the other side, and it functioned as a really nice windbreak. So during the cold temperatures, this would be a great place to, sit, to, to have conversations, to be preaching and talking and, and uh, fellowshipping with one another. You could, you could uh, get out of those icy temperatures. And then it says here, uh, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, they're literally here, the Jews encircled him. They came around him. They surrounded him. We saw that in Psalm 118. It talks about how the people were encircling him and encircling him. It mentions that several times. Um, so here we have, here we have Jesus is, is, is teaching and the Jews gather around him and they say to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, they say, um, How long will you hold our souls in suspense? Is what it literally says here. There's this... Um, so in the fact that they were encircling around Jesus, there's some, there's definitely within that wording, there's, there's a strong sense of some, of a hostile intent taking place here, as well as when they ask Jesus, how long will you hold our souls in suspense? There's more frustration and hostility being revealed in the questions that they're asking. So they're not, they're not coming to Jesus on good terms, right? Already we see they're coming, they're attacking, they, they're we want to know something from you. They're, they're coming at him very hostile. And they ask him this, or they, they continue their, their question, uh, though not in the form of a question. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They are looking for a straight yes or no. Tell us, Jesus, yes or no. Are you the Christ? Tell us. Now, again, the hostile intent may show that they were looking for an answer for them to have a reason to take care of business. We already seen that they've wanted to kill him for a long time now, for several months at least, if not for years. They want a simple yes or no, but uh, they, they assumed as, they, as they've been hearing Jesus teach, they assumed that Jesus has been cryptic about his identity, that he, he has not been clear. Jesus though responds uh, this way, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Now let's step back for a second. Jesus 
is claiming that he has, been, he has not been cryptic at all. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. It is not that he did not speak clearly. It was that they did not listen, is what Jesus is getting at. Which he describes not, as a malfunction, not of the ears, but of the heart. He's saying, look, I have been clear. What are you talking about? You want to know if I'm the Christ? I've been very clear about that. You just won't listen, right? So their, their ears, it's not that they didn't hear him correctly. It's that their hearts are not in the right place. They don't want to worship him. We'll open this up and unpack exactly what that looks like here. Um, Jesus continues on with this rebuke. He says, the words that I, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. He says, I haven't told you know, again, we, we can know for sure, right? There's no specific place where Jesus says, I am the Christ. It's not there. It hasn't happened yet. The closest we get to that is in, is in, uh, is in John, uh, John three, I think it is, um, uh, you know, in John four, where, where the woman, woman at the well says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, I am, right? He doesn't say the words, I am the Christ, but he does affirm this, this identification from the woman at the well. Um, but at the same time, he could not be clearer about his identity. He says, the works that I have done show clearly what, the, what, what it is, or who I am. Everything he did and said was rooted in or descriptive of his identity as the unique son, the son of man. This is why Jesus connects emphatically what he said about himself and what he has done. He says, look, I have been very clear. You've seen me do these things, right? We've even seen the Jews, these very people, have these same questions. How can someone who's from Satan heal someone and give someone you know, uh, sight who's been born blind? How could someone do these miracles? How could somebody do these things? Right? As the reader, we understand, duh, Right? The answer is obvious because he is the Christ. So for us as the reader, we could, it could not be any more clear. For these people in, this, in, this, in, these, in his day that were seeing this, they were blinded to what was going on. They couldn't understand. They refused to understand. So Jesus says, this is, he says, this is the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's because what I am doing reveals the Father, which shows you exactly who I am, that I am the Son of God. Jesus then continues on here in verse 26, says, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. This is the reality that Jesus is facing. This is the reality these, Jewish, these Jews are facing, this audience. They do not believe because they are not a part of his Flock. Edward Clink explains this. This is wonderful, uh, the way uh, Dr. Clink explains this. He says, It is important to note that the issue Jesus is addressing by this emphasis on unbelief is not the inability of the Jews to conceive of a suffering Christ instead of a nationalistic or political Christ. Rather, the issue Jesus addresses is a spiritual issue. It is about the nature of God and the expression of God by means of the Son. The issue is not merely intellectual, as if further study would clear things up. We should not think that the Jews understood God, but had a hard time fitting Jesus into the already established Jewish belief system. Rather, the very fact that the Jews rejected Jesus was proof of their rejection, no unbelief of God himself. 
There is no God without Jesus, and there is not belief in God without belief in Jesus. Just as the Father works through the Son, so also it is the Son that makes the Father known. So what's going on here? These people don't believe. They cannot believe. And Jesus says they can't, you cannot believe because you are not part of my flock. It's not because they just can't, they can't connect the dots. It's not that they just need some more information. They refuse to believe the truth about God and therefore they be- refuse to believe the truth about Jesus. In their minds, they cannot conceive <clears throat> of what we would call a triune God, a Trinitarian God. There is no compartment in their mind to allow for that kind of revelation of God, for there to be a Trinity. They can't get that. So it's not just that they, that they, don't, uh, they can't understand what Jesus is saying. It's that they cannot believe the very simple truth about God that he is Trinity, that he is triune. They cannot understand that. Their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, they in, in their reading of the Old Testament, they not they just they really they, they misunderstand who God is. They believe that they 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 think that they believe in the God of the Old Testament. They think that they've got it right, but they've misunderstood, they've misinterpreted the God of the Old Testament to understand it to be something that God is not. Right? They cannot understand God to be Trinity. If God exists as Trinity, they believe in a God that does not exist. And that's where Jesus' point is here. You're not even a part of my flock. How can you believe this? You have no compartment in your mind. You are so unwilling to believe the truth. You're not even a part of my flock. Jesus then follows up. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In verses four and five, we saw how the sheep hear the voice and they know him, right? That they know the shepherd because they hear his voice. Here, that's completely reversed. Not not only is it true that true sheep know the Savior's voice, but here the Savior knows his sheep. Not only should we learn to recognize who Jesus is and recognize the voice of the Savior, recognize the voice of the shepherd, but here also we see very clearly that the shepherd knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows the truth of whether or not we're a true believer. He knows that. Here the emphasis is on the the shepherd's knowledge of the sheep. This point strikes hard toward the Jews. For the Jews, it is not just their passive inability to recognize him as their shepherd. It is also his active rejection of them as sheep. You are not my sheep. Not only are the Jewish authorities incompetent as shepherds, as we saw last week, but now they are no longer able to call themselves sheep. They're not even there. They're not even in the sheepfold. So what is this telling us? We, we already explained that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, we're tr- we want to, in this first section here, we need to trust in the exclusive nature of salvation. There's not another way to God except through Jesus Christ. The Jews in this passage refuse to believe in the identity of Jesus. And so we're not part of Jesus' flock, not a part of the redeemed. The same is still true today. If you will not believe 
that Jesus is who he says he is, you cannot be saved. Muslims, Buddhists, those who follow Judaism or Hinduism or any other religion, any belief in science, any amount of good works, any amount of religious practices, no amount of Bible reading or prayer, none of that on its own can save you. You can come to church every single Sunday and still not be a believer if you continue to reject Jesus. We'll discuss more of this at the end of the service. We can be sure that there is an exclusive nature to the gospel. Now, again, some would consider this to be unloving. In fact, uh, many would, would say, oh, how could you say that you're the only ones that have the right answer? How could you say that you are the only ones who have the truth? I mean, Muslims, they're so, they're so genuine about their belief, or Hindus or Buddhists or whatever other religion. They're so genuine about their belief. How can we say that the gospel is exclusive to those who believe in Jesus Christ? Because Scripture tells us that. Amen. Scripture is clear about that. As a matter of fact, let's be fair. A Muslim would say the same thing about us. A Buddhist would say the same thing. A Hindu would say the same thing. Every religion believes that they're the only way. Right? Now again, we have direct revelation from God himself revealing who he is, revealing Jesus Christ. And again, if we want to say, well, what's your proof? How, do you, how can you prove that your, your, uh, your version is true and everybody else is false? The resurrection. Amen. If Jesus rose from the dead... Everyone else is wrong and Jesus is right. And because we know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead, there is proof. If you don't believe me, ask me. I would love to share with you that proof. We have undeniable proof that Jesus rose from the dead. If that is true, then this book is true and everything in it is true. Secondly, we need to trust the secure nature of our salvation. Look at verse 28 here. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We have two, very, two, pa- two sections of very, very strong language Jesus gives here. First of all, he says, I give them eternal life. When is the end of eternity? Never. Exactly. Right? There is no end to eternity. If Jesus has given eternal life, there is no end to that life given through Jesus. Amen. Secondly, this next phrase he says here, says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is another one of those beautiful situations where the, where the original language draws out the, the strength of what he's saying here. Not only there is, there is both the double negative and this phrase to the ages. If, if you were to literally read this, it would say, they will not not perish forever. Amen. That's certain. Right? If we were to say that in maybe a, a clearer English, it says it would be, we would maybe say, we will never, ever be lost, ever. Amen. That's truth. That's security. Amen. And not only that, look at how, the, how Jesus expands on this idea. He says, and they, uh, he says, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yeah. Yeah. No one. Hallelujah. No one means no one. Right? 
Not you, not me, no one. And then Jesus continues further and the joy just keeps overflowing. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Those who have been redeemed were given to, to to the good shepherd by the father. And not only does the good shepherd hold us in his hand, but the father holds us in his hand as well. Those are two divine hands holding your salvation secure. What a beautiful truth. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, as Nicole read this morning. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's make a theological point here. We talked last week a little bit about how we need to understand theology to recognize the voice of the Savior. Let's unpack this a little bit. There are, there are several, I would may even maybe go, even go so far as to say many people who claim to be Christians that would suggest that in this passage, it is emphasized that no one else can cause you to lose your salvation, but you can choose to no longer follow the Lord and therefore cause yourself to lose your salvation. They would believe that, that your salvation is not secure, that you can lose your salvation. And that's how they would read this passage. They'd say, they would come to this passage, and you'd say, well, what about this? No one's able to take them out of my father's hand. They'd say, no one else. You can go ahead and jump out anytime you want to, right? No one else can pull you away, but you can jump out. First of all, we saw the emphatic language that strongly indicates the security of salvation. Remember, never, ever lost, ever. We see here, the divine force of the Father and Son in holding our salvation secure. But let's, let's not just settle on one passage, right? If we stopped here and we said this is the only passage we have, we might have reason to question the doctrine, right? In, in, in theology, we want to say, not, we, we don't want to hang theology on one isolated passage of Scripture. We want to see, does the rest of Scripture agree with this? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 speaks of the Holy Spirit as the seal of our salvation. Now we have all three members of the Trinity securing our salvation. Right? The Father and the Son, their hands holding our salvation. The Holy Spirit sealing our salvation, securing our salvation. Uh, guaranteeing that our salvation is secure. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says that the redeemed, describes the redeemed person, the Christian, the saved person, the true believer, as seated with Christ in heaven. Salvation is so certain that God can speak of future realities in the, in the past tense. How cool is that? Right, One day, we will experience being seated with the Father. If you are a believer, one day we will experience that. That is a future event. God is so certain of your salvation that he can talk about it in the past tense, that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that's not the only time he does that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says something similar. It says, those whom he justified or saved, he also glorified. Glorification in Scripture is the time when those who are believers are finally, forever, with Jesus. Again, salvation is so certain that God can speak of that future event as a past tense reality. What an amazing thought. How glorious is that? 
With this overwhelming evidence, let's do some other, a little bit more difficult theological work. Let's go to a passage where some people claim it is possible to lose your salvation. There's a verse in the Bible that if interpreted a certain way through a certain lens, you might be able to take that as understanding that you can lose your salvation. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, says this, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what do we do with this passage? On a, on a surface reading, it could look very much like there's a possibility you could lose your salvation. And we've already seen there is overwhelming evidence in the opposite direction that our salvation is indeed secure. One thing we do in theology is we say, what do other passages say? Right? If the rest of Scripture disagrees with the theory that this passage means you can lose your salvation, then almost certainly that theory is incorrect. Right? We have lots of scriptures so far, and many more that I could have mentioned, that talk about the security of our salvation. We have this one passage here that could be interpreted to mean you can lose your salvation. So if it doesn't mean we can lose your salvation, how do we understand it so we understand that that's not what it's saying? First, let's notice the first phrase. Let's try to unpack what's going on here. It says, for it is impossible. For it is impossible. So, we must naturally look for the answer to the question, what is impossible? Now, what we have here is a series of qualifications that follow this. The answer doesn't come until verse 6. If you were to, part, if you were to graph this sentence out, this forward is impossible is the beginning. The end of that, the answer to that question doesn't come until verse 6. Second, we, no, we notice this long series of qualifications before an answer is given. Look, in, look at after this. It says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of, of God and the powers of the age to come. This person is truly saved. They have to be. With this kind of description, the person being described, this, this description here is of a person who is truly saved. Then look at this last qualification though. This person who is truly saved. Again, remember that it is impossible this person who is truly saved and then have fallen away. Okay, this would be to reject salvation. This would be to reject all of that. To have partaken in all of this beauty of salvation and then to have said, nope, I don't want it anymore. That's what it means to have fallen away. More directly rejecting the faith or losing their salvation. This is brought, then brought into question. Look at the rest of verse 6. So what is impossible? If, this, if these qualifications could be met, it is impossible that what? It would be impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him to contempt. If such a possibility could take place, it would be impossible to be renewed to repentance or to get saved again because it would essentially be an affront to the gospel. Given the evidence from the rest of Scripture, it would seem that it is impossible to lose your salvation. Does this passage disagree? I don't think so. 
Rather, I believe this passage is a hypothetical argument which shows the absurdity that someone could lose their salvation. In fact, I think that the writer of all, the author of Hebrews, what most people want to take this passage and say, oh, see, you can lose your salvation. But the author of Hebrews, what he has in mind is the exact opposite point. He is showing why it would be so absurd to think that you could lose your salvation. That would be such a ridiculously absurd idea. If they could lose their salvation, they could never be restored. So then it must be impossible to lose your salvation. Right? If there is unlimited forgiveness with God, a person who is, was saved and could lose that salvation could not come back to repentance because that would be an affront to the God. Think about this. The atoning sacrifice of Christ, forgiving you of your sins, that transaction between the Son and the Father taking place, that if you could get in the middle of that and break that up, what you would be saying again is that Jesus needs to be crucified a second time for you. And that is an absurd claim. And if it, was, if it was possible to lose your salvation, you could never get it back. Okay? So then you might say, well, then it's impossible to get it back. Right? If you could lose, then you can lose your salvation. It's impossible to get saved again. Okay? Throughout the Gospel of John, we've already seen that there's a clear difference between believing and truly believing. I think what we learn more clearly from this passage in Hebrews is that it would be impossible for someone who is truly saved to actually reject the Lord. Think about it. Could you imagine someone understanding the salvation offered through Jesus, believe and trust in the Lord for that salvation, and then actually reject that salvation? Think about it. Look at the description again of, 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 of salvation. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. How could you have experienced and seen all of that for real, actually seen all of that and ever say, yeah, you know what? I don't want that anymore. I think the exact point before, before, before you attack me for whatever experience you may have had or whatever friends you may have had in certain situations, let me deal with biblical truth first. I think the point of the author of Hebrews is this. That is ridiculous for someone to have experienced all of that and to give it up. That would be ridiculous. This is a warning then. This passage functions then as a warning against that very, that very thought process. I think the clear answer to the riddle is that a person who claims to be a Christian and rejects the Lord was not a Christian in the first place. They were not true believers. Now again, I know that can be hard to hear. I know that for many of us, we've had friends that maybe grew up in church with us, children, grandchildren, that may have grown up in church. And you know, you thought they were a Christian, they got baptized, they said stuff that you thought made them sound like a Christian. And they just disappeared. They fell off the map. And maybe they, they converted to atheism or something like that. I'm sure we've all got stories that we could tell. I think the unfortunate and, and, and harsh reality of Scripture is that it's very possible, from our perspective at least, they're probably not saved in the first place. From our perspective. Now, let me be clear. If they were truly saved, the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that God holds them secure. The overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that God holds them secure. 
if they were truly saved, that's between them and God. Amen. He knows if they were truly saved or not. Amen. From our perspective, though, what we ought not do is say, you know what, that person, that friend of mine, they became a Christian as a kid and they rejected the Lord later, they're fine. Instead, our response is they need the gospel and we need to preach it to them. They need to hear the gospel from us because I'm not sure they're even Christian. And they need the gospel, maybe to accept it for the first time. This passage, this, this truth here about the security of our salvation, it's one of my favorite truths in all of the Bible. If you are a Christian, your salvation is secure. Is it secure because of something special about you or special about me? No. And that's the good thing. I know that there's nothing special about me. If the security of my soul was dependent on me, I would be in grave danger. He who began a good work, or it's no, our salvation is secure because God is faithful to his promises. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Christian artist Shai Lin said it, said it this way in praise to God. He says, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. Your salvation is secure because of God's character Amen. and God's faithfulness. His faithful love endures forever, as we read in, in Psalm 118. And the final truth we see in this passage is that there is a, we need to trust the divine nature of salvation. So we trust the exclusive nature of our salvation. We trust the secure nature of our salvation. Finally, we trust the divine nature of salvation. Jesus ends this passage with, with uh, what, according, according to Andreas Kostenberger, is the first major climax of the Gospel of John. The second climax is in chapter 19, where from the cross, Jesus declares, it is finished. This first climax of the Gospel of John is right here in verse 30. John chapter 10 and verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus' emphasis here is that his work and the work of the Father, especially in salvation, are really one work. Such is the divine nature of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist as divine persons with distinct characteristics and especially in salvation, different tasks. Yet, they also share one single nature. Therefore, they are truly one united being. Ultimately, our salvation does not come from our own merits. On Wednesday, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 describes us apart from Christ. In the first verses of Ephesians 2, it describes that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enemies of God and followers of our own sinful passions, serving and worshiping ourselves and therefore serving and worshiping Satan. Apart from Christ, we are the very enemies of God, the objects of God's holy wrath against sin. Since we are dead in our trespasses, there's nothing that we can offer. No good works, no religious practices or ceremony, nothing. We are completely helpless to save ourselves. Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there, though. It says, but God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Sent his son to die for us. 
God didn't leave us dead. Even when we were still dead in our trespasses, God sought us with salvation. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. God the Father sent God the Son to take on humanity so that he could drink the full cup of God's wrath directed toward you. He paid the penalty of your sin through a gruesome death on a cross. Only through death could he conquer death and bring life. In this death, he paid a transaction to the Father for your sin. We call that the atonement. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He resurrected to life so that you might have life. The only access to this glorious salvation, this eternally secure salvation, is through believing or trusting Jesus for your salvation. Because of your sin, you cannot save yourself. Because of my sin, I could not save myself. The salvation offered to you and to me is 100% from God. That salvation is offered by grace. Grace is something we don't deserve. God giving us something we don't deserve. I don't deserve salvation. What my sin deserves is eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But because of God's grace, he offers salvation. You can't earn this salvation. You don't deserve this salvation. But God cares enough about you to offer it to you. You cannot buy this salvation. It's infinitely valuable. Remember when those 120-something inch screen TVs came out? And they were like $150,000? There's no way I was going to buy one. Right? Right? Salvation is so much more valuable than the largest television. So much more valuable than the most fancy car. So much more valuable than the biggest house. You could never afford it. You could work your entire life ten times over. Bill Gates could make ten times, hundred times more than what he makes now and could never afford the salvation that was given through Christ. And because of that, God offers it for free. You could never earn it. So God offers it freely. Apart from Jesus, as we have already seen, there is no hope of salvation. Only hope for an eternal separation from God. Will you trust this divinely given salvation? As we move into our time of invitation... We've seen these three truths. One, we must trust in the exclusive nature of our salvation. We cannot buy this lie that there are multiple ways to God. We cannot buy this lie that there is there are that I can be good enough to gain God's favor. We can't buy this lie that that you know what there's another path that gets to the same place at the top of the mountain. It is a lie. Second, we can trust in the secure nature of salvation. If you're struggling with whether or not you're a Christian, 
Let me tell you for one thing, if you have truly believed in Jesus Christ, you can trust and be secure in that salvation. If you're not truly a Christian, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to surrender to Jesus Christ. And then to trust the third thing, trust the divine nature of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word, to unpack these wonderful truths of salvation, Lord. Things that I never would have been able to plan a salvation so glorious as this. Nowhere in my brain could I have come up with such a glorious truth, such a, such a wonderfully victorious, wonderfully satisfying salvation. Oh, God, only you could. Thank you for the truths of your salvation. I pray that you would help us during this time of invitation, Lord, that you would help us to surrender to you. Lord, if there's areas of our lives that we need to uh, get back in line with your word, I pray that we would repent of those things now. Lord, if there's areas that we need to surrender to you, I pray that we would surrender those to you now. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, I pray that they would surrender their lives to you now. In your name, amen.